welcome to Creator Talks, the podcast about comic book writers and artists. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On today's episode, I bring to you my panel from Baltimore Comic Con last weekend, how new formats and themes are expanding comic book readership. What is it all about? Well, for decades, when most people thought of comics, 22-page superhero adventures for children came to mind. Today, greater diversity of theme and format are expanding comic readership. Who are these new readers? What messages do comics with new formats and themes contain that reach and inspire a new generation of readers? And how are creators reaching them? So I moderated this panel and I was joined by Laura Lee Gulledge, who wrote Page by Page, Will and Wit, Steve Conley, who was writing The Middle Age, Tom Zoller of Love and Capes, Time and Vine, and Warning Label, and newcomer 10-year-old Bryce W. Bullock and his father Demetrius of Daddy Long Legs and The Inchworm all share their insights and answers to the questions I pose. So for clarity and your listening enjoyment, I have edited the panel a bit, but not taking out any content of what my guests shared. Joining me for the panel were my son Nolan, who was dressed as Spider-Man, and my daughter Vicky, who is a photographer and took photos of the event, which I will post. I also recorded a video, which I might just go ahead and clean up a little bit and get that out there for you to watch. But for now, please join me, How New Formats and Themes Are Expanding Comic Book Readership, with my guests from Baltimore Comic Con, here now on Creator Talks. Thank you so much for joining me today and my panelists. The name of the panel, and I have to write this out because I always pick long titles. I don't know why I do that to myself. How new formats and themes are expanding comic book readership. Now, when comics used to come out, some of us might remember the time when they were printed on cheap newsprint. You know, when people said comic books, the general public would think about Superman, Spider-Man, funny animals, you know, Donald Duck, that kind of thing. And of course, over the years, that's changed. Now we see greater diversity in comic books greater diversity in the marketplace, it's easier to get a hold of those diverse comics, and there are new audiences that are reading those comics. And as time went on, we know there's the direct marketplace where distribution is better. Comics are getting into comic book shops, specialty shops, but that poses another challenge for our creators. There's limited shelf space. Retailers can sometimes be afraid to take a chance on a new book. You know, they don't want to be stuck with a lot of copies. So what are creators to do? How can they get exposure to new audiences with all these different platforms we have now? We have print, we have graphic novels, we have digital comics we can find on Comixology, we have web comics like through line webtoons. So there's so many different ways to reach your audience. And who is that audience? And that's what we're gonna find out today from our panelists, how they have been successful with these new platforms reaching out and finding new audiences. So. Before we begin, I just want to introduce you to everybody on the panel today. To my right is Steve Conley, cartoonist, designer. He has worked on such books as Star Trek, Year 4 for IDW, JLAZ for DC, and of course, his own book, The Middle Age, and which was just actually successfully funded as a print edition. It started out as a webcomic, and now it is in print and you can find that at his table. Also, uh, Astounding Space Thrills. You were also an Eisner nominee several times over and Ringo nominee as well. And also a member of the Baltimore Comics Con Advisory Board and you also came up with the logo for Baltimore Comics Con. 
and also a co-founder of Kids Love Comics. Please welcome Steve. I can't believe you sat in order. You're in the order I have my cards. This is amazing. <laughs> Next up, Laura Lee Gulledge. She's an educator, teacher, guest speaker, consultant. You have your MA in art education. You write young age graphic novels, Will and Wit, page by page, which is also an Eisner nominee. And your latest book is Sketchbook Dares, which is a little more interactive with the audience. So we're going to learn about that. Next up, Tom Zoller. Tom has worked on such properties as My Little Pony. He writes romantic comedies, rom-comics, rom-coms, rom-comics, is that a term? We can use that? It is now. Rom-comics, Love and Capes, Long Distance, Time and Vine, and Warning Label, which was also funded as a Kickstarter and is now gone from digital to print. So we're gonna learn more about that, so give it up for Tom. And all the way from Delaware, I have Bryce and Demetrius Block. They are the creators. Well, actually, Bryce here came up with the concept, the designs for his own comic, ably assisted by dad and publisher mom, Michelle. Daddy Long Legs and the Inchworm, through their imprint, Pancake Images. And the second volume just came out. I love this title. Daddy Long Legs and the Inchworm, Here Comes Hot Garbage. <laughs> so we're going to learn about how they've connected with new audiences and what it means to their audience to see a comic book like this out now. So let me begin. I'll throw this question out to the panelists. What alternative channels have you used to distribute your comics and found success with? What steps did you take and preparations did you make to ensure success with these alternate channels? And Steve, we'll start with you. Oh. No pressure. Yeah. Why are you a success, Steve? Yeah, and yeah. how did I... What's the secret? How did I you get on the end. But how did I ensure my success? Um, that's... Gosh, it's such a tough question. Well, listen, I mean, your latest We're not recording this, right? <laughs> your latest Kickstarter, did it surpass what you expected? It, okay, it succeeded because I had very humble goals. <laughs> how about that? Realistic. Very realistic, very uh, low expectations. Low expectations help a lot. Uh, my work doesn't really fit in any kind of pre-existing box. When people want to sell stuff through the direct market you talked about, through comic book shops, they kind of have this idea that, well, what category is it in? What is it like? What, who is it for? There's a lot of calculation that I really didn't do when I just started drawing a duck. You know, it was really, <laughs> it, they want to sell things that they already have boxes built for. And if your stuff doesn't fit into a pre-existing box, then it's a lot harder for them to sell it or they don't know how to sell it. It doesn't fit on the shelves. It doesn't go somewhere. So my approach was to go one-to-one -one reach out directly to readers, and that's why webcomics helped me out a lot, because I could do this comic and just send out to everyone in the world, and maybe there's a handful of people who like the same crazy stuff I like, and that's how it found an audience, and then it got lucky with some award nominations and things like that, and so it slowly built up an audience over two years, but I didn't do a Kickstarter until like, I had two years of just going, like this? How about this? <laughs> and so, so I, I didn't really ensure success as much as, I made it so it was low cost to me, it was easy for me, it was fun for me, it was not something that I had to give up my day job for. And so as it built an audience and as it builds financial support, I can devote more time to it. So I guess I played it safe. I okay. guess that's how. Realistic goals. Realistic goals. And a long-term plan. And a really rambling answer. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's hard to go first. Uh, I guess I'll go next. Um, well, I started off, I didn't fit in a box. 
Um, and so I just sort of self-published like little baby versions of my sketchbook and was selling them locally. And then I self-published something a little bit bigger and then I sell something a little bit bigger. Um, because uh, I feel like that we don't know how to ensure success. We just keep working and keep trying. Like I did a Kickstarter for uh, the musical of Will and Wit, and we totally bombed. And I was just so mortified. I was just like, it, I was like, oh, this is oh, terrible. But like now I'm doing a Patreon to help support, uh, cover my rent while I'm drawing the new book. Because I had to sort of admit that, you know what, I, it's that second year of rent. Because to make a comic takes twice as long. You gotta write it, but then you have to draw it all out. Uh, and I was feeling really ashamed of like asking for help. I was like, I should, I'm not successful if I can't just figure this out. But I got like a local grant because I'm in Charlottesville. And like, so I've got like a grant in the page. So I'm like, okay, so it's like, it's okay for me to ask for help. Success doesn't mean that I'm just doing it all alone. It means that I'm asking for help and people are now like, they're included in the book. So that's a very new thing for me that I was sort of like still dealing with. Um, but yeah, I guess my favorite way to c get it out there is that I've the librarian network, they have been the best way for me to get my work out there because librarians, <laughs> they're like keepers of the keys. So you get in with them and they all get together because they have flexibility in their school and they're just such this safe space. So librarians, like, they're my people, so. <laughs> um, I got lucky, so. My thought between, uh, I did a book called Raider, which was a huge resounding failure. And then when I did Love and Capes is I didn't want to do what everybody else was doing because I could be the 20th best superhero book on the market or I could write about something that really interested me, which was romantic comedies and superheroes having relationships and just something funny that wasn't supposed to be this master, you know, 20 volume arc. It was just something that made me happy. And then when I did two, I said I would do six. And then I kept aiming for six because I could trade that up. But nobody was doing romantic comedies. Nobody was doing characters in good relationships. So I thought there might be an audience out there for that. And so when I started self-publishing and the numbers, it's kind of like Steve was saying where you have modest goals. The numbers that make my book successful make DC sad. But I don't have an office in Burbank that I have to pay for. So, and I was also lucky that Free Comic Book Day had been around for a couple of years, but they didn't have it quite like riveted down the way that it is now. So I was able to do my fourth issue for Free Comic Book Day. And one of the things I like about being a self-publisher, my staff meetings take place in the mirror. And I said, I got an idea. Let's print 1,500 copies of this book and give them away for free. And then I said, that's a great idea, and your hair looks great today. Um, so I did that, and that was the greatest promotion that I've ever done. And I got this niche for doing romance, like, like slightly softer kind of books. And the, thing, the next thing that happened was a couple of years ago here at Baltimore, Line Webtoon approached me about doing a book. And if you do romances in print comic books, you're like this weird guy that, you know, there's an audience for, but it's not a huge audience for. But when you go to web comics, suddenly you're a left-handed pitcher and you are what they have been looking for. It is, it is what they want, and then I did Warning Label, and that just kind of blew up in all sorts of ways. I know for us, um, to ensure success in what we're doing uh, with our comic books as being fresh and new to this, the creator here, Bryce, made the characters very fun and entertaining. Um, he took a shot at uh, creating 
uh, something off of me asking him is, you know, I would like to be a character one day. And he came up with the idea of Daddy Long Legs and the Inchworm. And as we moved forward with this, um, we just thought of all kind of inventive ways to make it very exciting for, um, for our audience. One of the things we do to make sure that we're capable of achieving our goals is uh, my son, my wife, and myself, we sit down and we have our staff meetings, our, our creative team meetings. It's so funny because he's sitting there at the head of the table to try to see <laughs> where we're going to go with this, where the idea is going to take us next, and, and you know what the next issues are. Um, and we've just, we're trying to stay along a path format and, and ensuring that all the issues come out and, and everything is, uh, again, is, is fresh and new. Another thing we did was that we, throughout the time of, of creating it, uh, we went and we created all kinds of like news, like fictitious news articles that we would post on social media, made it interesting to the people that were waiting for the issues to come out. You know, that gravitated a nice audience for us and, and as it you know, came out through our extended family, like comic book shops, libraries, schools that took a, a great liking to it, they just embraced it and have been able to push this along. Well, I think everyone's touched upon a bit about the themes in their books that's resonating with audiences. So I'm going to start again back with you, mm. Demetrius. What themes and messages are in your books that you find resonating with the audience? And also tell me the story, Bryce, about a young man that came to see you at a comic show and how your book connected to him and why it connected with him. What was it about your book that made him so excited? So what happened? is um at the comic book shop our friend she like um put up some on social media about like what's happening at the thing to come on over and she posted pictures of us on the thing and then the kid he said hey he looks like me he came over there so excited to meet me he got the book we took some pictures i don't think we have any <laughs> pictures though but yeah it just felt like really good my comic book made a kid want to see me yeah and that's it's how you're reaching a new audience you actually excited someone about your work mm-hmm and Tom what, what's the theme in your book I mean obviously romantic comedies how is it resonating with the audience what are you hearing back that they're so excited about your work I hear that they like well-developed characters especially um, especially from when it started in like 2006 um, well-developed female characters people tell me that I understand how people work and if you know any people I know, that is not true. Um, but I know how to make it seem like people work. Uh, I've gotten in discussions where it's like, you handle this so much better in your books. Why is it hard for you here? I'm like, in my books, they have a script. And I've worked it out. I could give you a script, and then we could have the conversation. One of the things, and I think it's a unifying theme in my work, aside from hating the tax code, which shows up all the time, is it's all about passion. When I created Love and Capes, Crusader is the superhero, and he was the easiest character for me to write, because I know superhero jokes. And I made his girlfriend, I didn't want her to be a reporter, I didn't want her to interact at that level, I made her own a bookstore. Because my feeling is, if you've got two characters, they have to be awesome at something, but not the same thing. It's why, not to bring up bad memories, but in the Green Lantern movie, uh, before Deadpool erased it, um, making Carol Ferris a pilot is dumb, because she is the second best pilot in the film, because Hal Jordan's the best. Making Sue Storm a scientist in Fantastic Four makes her the third smartest person in the film. That's not interesting. If she's a great businesswoman, that's far more interesting. So as good as Mark is as being a superhero, Abby is that good at running a bookstore. 
and my characters have this through line, especially in romantic comedies, they all have to want something that's not being in love. They have to have something that drives them so that their entire life is not just getting married or just getting the, the other person. They have to have something they want. And then if they want it enough, it makes it very easy to come up with a conflict. In long distance, it's two people who meet in an airport and they really, they hit it off and they really like each other, but they really like their jobs and their jobs are not by each other and they have to figure out how to make that work and what compromises and when, when one gets put over the other. So it's that struggle with your passion, people who are really motivated about it that I think unifies, I think, everything I've done. So themes that people respond to. Mm -hmm. I guess I like to give voice to, I guess my target are, because I used to be a middle school teacher, so I really have a soft spot for eighth graders because they're sort of, they're great and so frustrating and, <laughs> and wild. Um, so I like to, like sensitive, introverted weirdos who are creative. That's sort of my little niche. I always think it's less, I'm not focused on like girls because I feel like it's more introverts. People who struggle with their inner world versus their outer world and there's sort of a conflict there because in comics you can just draw it visually and you can like bridge the gap. I don't know if anyone was here for the mental health panel yesterday. We had a really awesome discussion because really I like to teach through story and talk to 13 year old me who decided that her voice didn't matter. So I'm always looking for like the, the kid who's like not going to make eye contact with me and like you are, you are going to like my book, come here. Because um, I really want to, I feel like people who are quiet and we're not as like outgoing, look at me, that there's a lot of storytellers and voices that have something to say, but just because they're quiet, it's hard, I mean, it's hard for us to come out of our shell, but I want to create stories that help encourage us all to come out of our shell so people see themselves reflected and they say that it's safe, they see that it's safe to come out. I can come out now. At first, when I got into Grevenhaus, I felt like a big fraud, like, I don't belong here. Um, but then once I was doing a, an event where I had a handler who was a seventh grader named Karen, and she had like red hair and purple glasses, and I used to have purple glasses, and she was just so excited. And in that moment, I was like, you are not going to doubt yourself, because you're now her role model. If she sees that you are not enjoying this, and you're not accepting her love, she'll see that she will never be able to do it, like accept love and like accept herself. Yeah, so she changed my life, me and that little girl, because I realized this isn't about me anymore. These stories belong to us, like, and it's about you. Those are the good moments. And you take it back to the studio and you're like, oh, and you're drawing, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> my work is a bit different because I'm doing a serialized story with like a page a week. So it's important that my stories are, thematically, that they're easily digestible. So it's almost like, it's a bit of a cliche about a knight going to try to rescue his love. That's not what the story's about, but that's what it ostensibly is about. It's sort of like, that's the easy thing that everyone says, oh, I now know what this character wants. Like what Tom was saying about making the characters clearly understandable. And then everything evil befalls him. Not evil, horrible, eh, uh, bad, how about that? And, and one, 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 uh, one screw up after another. So because those are bite-sized bits, I think what connects is the humor, what connects is the silliness of it. It's all excuse to just draw silly things and play with language. The story's really about family and trying to hold it together and getting older. I mean, that's why it's called the middle age. It's kind of a pun on the, you know, the setting and the, the hero. But um, I don't know, what do you, what discussions of theme always seem like something for after the project is done and not so much that I can see while I'm doing it. Think about, and this is for everyone, 
and we'll start with you, Steve. Think about the profile of the audience. How is that different from the profile of what we would expect for superhero comic book readers who go to their local comic shop? How is that audience makeup different from what you know, from the feedback you've received? And as a follow-up to that, also tell me about a discussion you have with a publisher when they said, who's this for? Also tying back to who the audience is. I've actually tried to get this published through some, uh, uh, some comic book shop publishers, and they're like, nah, it doesn't really fit. Uh, uh, the reaction has been very kind. It's just, it is something that's a harder sell because it isn't quite what they're used to. Uh, you think fantasy would be easy. You think, I mean, there's a million fantasy web comics out there, so how is this in any way different or new? You'd think there'd be an existing, there's proof that there's an existing audience for it, so if you did it better, you'd think there might be a market for that. Um, not that I'm better, I'm just saying, uh, uh, if you did it, okay, it's better. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. I, if, if you did it for longer, it would get better. You'd finally do that 10,000 hours, and you'd finally get to the point where, okay, that's, you know, it doesn't look like when you started. The trouble when you're selling a comic book through the direct market is that you're selling it to the distributor, then you're selling it to the retailer, then, and they're maybe selling it to the reader, whereas I'm selling it to the reader directly. There's nothing in between. And, and not even selling it, I'm giving it away. It's one of these things where if you like it, it's there for you, and I'm going to keep making it, and if you like it, come back, and if you don't. So the audience is slowly built by word of mouth, by me wearing the audience down, I guess. I, I don't know if that answers the question, but it, it, the, I, don't know, I don't know how the direct market is all that different, except there's people who go into comic book shops. You know? So I do simplify my storytelling for people who are not used to reading comic books, so that if you're a person who's, this is your first comic book, if all you've ever read is Peanuts or Garfield, then you should be able to read my story. And, and I make it available on every conceivable platform. It's available on social media. I stretch it vertically to fit on webtoons. It's horizontal over on Go Comics. I just cut this thing up into a million shapes to make it as easy for people to digest. So, wait, what was the question again? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the profile <laughs> of your audience. Your audience. The profile of your audience. How is it different from the typical superhero um, audience? If there is such a thing even typical anymore. Well, I find, it's funny. When I've been on, like, girl, girl panel, girls in comics panels, I feel like I used to get it earlier when I was first getting into comics. Like, basically, tell me how, why it's hard to be a girl in comics. Like, I was supposed to have this terrible, like, struggle story. And I actually felt like I got into comics, the door opened because at Abrams, like Diary of a Wimpy Kid was making them so much money, they were like, we're gonna do more comics, we should do some more stuff for girls, yeah, we should get some more girls in here making comics. And I was out there just throwing everything out at the wall. And so I give away thousands of stickers over the past decade. I give everyone like stickers, because uh, you never know. And so one got passed along to another, like, oh, this girl, she has a good voice, she doesn't do comics, but let's have her. And so it helped me get my foot in the door because like Raina Telgemeier proved that girls like comics. There was this whole new category being carved out and it was just expanding and like, like we're gonna get in on this. It's like finding the, the void that you can, the need that you can fill to get your foot in the door. So I was just so thankful. It's like anything, it was made it easier for me because there was like, I don't know, less stuff there and people were, the audience was hungry for more because it takes so long to make a graphic novel and we just can't keep up. So I'm like, yeah, we need more creators. We need more because there's an appetite and I can't wait to see what comics then they'll make. But yeah, my audience is definitely the, I guess my comps, it's like, yeah, like Raina and Faith Aaron Hicks and like Hope Larson and <coughs> all these awesome ladies. Um, it's a good career to be in, so yeah, as long as like the girls and I do more like artistic, so I try to do less like panels and approach it more like, I don't know, artistically. Because I learned how to do like page composition from like looking at Hieronymus Bosch paintings. Like that's more of my inspiration growing up. So yeah, so I try to just do it, I don't know, do what I don't see in other places 
which is also hard because if you're not in a box, then you sort of can fall between the cracks because my new book, Sketchbook Dares, it doesn't really fit in the box. And so I'm like, oh, this is really hard to get out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was in no way calculated. I was drawing and writing a book that I thought was funny to me. And I did it so small that I could afford to experiment with it. I think the audience for comics and the way it's working is changing so dynamically so much. Um, when I started, I think we were still coming out of the 90s when things were hypersexualized and they were clearly being done for boys. And I was writing a comic that didn't offend women. It became the comic that guys who like comics could give their girlfriend because it would get them interested in the medium and there wouldn't be stuff that they would have to look past and go, oh, I really need to not pay attention to that because that Rob Liefeld drawing is not good or whatever. I was only aiming at me, and I think that helped it. Like, there's a joke in, and, and I think this is the reason the book works the way it does, is there's a joke where the crusader is hanging out with his girlfriend. She knows who he is because I thought it was really interesting to figure out when you tell your girlfriend your big secret because it bothered me in the Superman comics that he waited until after he was engaged, because I thought you should lead with that. So he's on the couch and she's asking what his weakness is and he won't tell her because I never figured one out. And he's like, why do you want to know? The last guy I knew, you know, his girlfriend blabbed it to the newspapers. And finally he says, you, you're my weakness. I can do anything else, but you make me melt. You're my weakness. Nice, sweet scene, but it doesn't end there because the next scene is him going, I've been dodging bullets for the last 10 years. You don't think I know how to dodge that one? It kept it from being sappy or saccharine. It was enough of a real moment, too, where it wasn't what people were expecting. So it served audiences that weren't being served. And then when I finally moved over to IDW, I had self-published for two, three years, and I had the numbers that I was able to build and say, I don't have to prove to you that these people are out there. You know these people are out there because these are my sales figures. Um, and that helped a lot because I was able to build it up where I wasn't aiming at an audience, but once I found them, I could build them up a little bit more. That's what I did, and that's how I got with IDW. I think that um, our audience for the Daddy Long Legs and the Inchworm, for me, I think it's like for all ages because in normal superhero comics, it's more like a little more graphic and a little cussing and stuff like that. In this comic, it has violence, but not like the stuff with all this blood and stuff like that. <laughs> it's fun, and it reaches out to like a family, because in the comic, it shows like the relationship between a father and son, and I implanted all my family members into the comic, because soon, my mom's going to be in the comic, my brother's going to get powers, but usually the normal comics are for like teenagers and adults, but this is for kids who can't read to adults who like the story in general. So that's what I think. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do your backers and readers of your books, how do they help expand your audience? I mean, besides buying it, consuming it, how are they helping to spread the word? How are they helping to extend that reach for you? The way how our backers are, are extending just the, the readership on it is just through, for us, it's been through word of mouth. We utilize social media. Um, the content of it has definitely excited our audience. As he said, it's, it's family oriented, so it, it has given us a, a, a much 
broader audience and people have been collecting the comics to make them as gifts and uh, again they're in the library their topic discussions for him being so young and coming up with the idea of it is definitely expanded more than I, I expected it is definitely you know going further than I thought yeah word of mouth helps a lot um, I try to make the book shareable in certain ways like having pages that they can share or images that they can share because there's nothing better than someone who's really motivated, who wants someone else to read it. Like, that's the, that's the best thing I can do, and I try not to get in the way. Um, some of the stuff just comes down to, uh, especially doing Free Comic Book Day, I made sure that the book was always accessible, and I didn't want to put in a big page of text that you had to read. You know, that was one of those, like, movie voiceovers. In the beginning, this happened. You know, like if you write well or you try really hard and do the work like I did, you can make it conversational that, oh, these two people are on their honeymoon and they've been on their honeymoon for a week and now they have to go back and he's a superhero and you can find that out in the first page and a half and that's all you need to know to enjoy the book. So just not making it hard for people to get the next one and making it as, as omnipresent as possible and just as accessible as possible. And then with Kickstarter, I'm very appreciative of my fans and I let them know that. It is sometimes hard because sometimes I'm tired and sometimes I'm sick and sometimes I may have been out till two in the morning and the night before at the convention. But I won't give them a bad experience. One, that's never going to benefit me. But two, I'm so grateful to them for what they do that I want them to know they're appreciated. And having that respect for your audience rather than taking them for granted it would be very tempting with My Little Pony, which I work on, which has such a fan base, I could take them for granted and occasionally not be as available to a kid. But if a kid wants to learn about drawing, I will sit there and I'll talk to them about drawing. And it doesn't matter what else I'm doing because they're the focus and you need to keep them that way so that they respect you, you respect them, and then they're willing to help you out to help bridge the gap and get more people to see your work. Well, I'm definitely gifted a lot. I feel like when I first started doing shows, I would have people would come to my table. Often it was the girlfriend who was brought there by her boyfriend. She's like, oh, your stuff is like different. Like, <laughs> or a guy would buy a gift for you know, somebody else. But, so I'm, I feel like a lot of people buy my stuff because they have like a young person in their life who's creative and clever and quiet and shy and they want to help, but we don't know how to help. You know, when someone is sort of holding everything in, so they'll get my book. And I always feel like that's such a, a compliment. Um, I do a lot of school visits. And so the number of, like, I'll like, meet a librarian, and they'll bring me to the school and connect me with their group of kids, and, uh, which I love. And um, oh, I was thinking of something else, and it flew out of my head, because also I was up very late last night, and I'm used to being in bed at 10. It tell was us. something funny. Like, <laughs> Could you tell us about the concept of an artner? Oh, um, Artner is, a little Artner button here. An Artner is your partner in art. Oh, now I remember the third thing, because it deals with like, Artnership. All my characters in my stories are creative, because I like to sort of model different types of creativity, because I am a ex-middle school art teacher, so I like to sort of teach through story and example and modeling. And so, like in page by page, they do some agents of whimsy Artner activities where they do sort of little art attack things out in the world, like a message in a bottle tree or like things in that. Because I also do some like street art. And so sometimes I'll see like readers, they'll actually then do it in their community and that just tickles me pink. Because I'm like, yes, they got it. 
to see that we can build a world on paper, but also we can do stuff in the real world, which is fun. So Art Nurse is a, it's just a healthy model for creative collaborating, because I was burning out and imploding, which we romanticize as creatives. You know, the imploding is so beautiful and in New York and just not doing well. And I had a, a friend who was also going through a similar thing. So we're gonna do a collaboration together and we ended up developing this partnership concept to help create a support system for all of us so we're not just isolated and imploding in our studios, but that we can work together in a more healthy fashion and be more supportive of each other and sort of change this narrative so we can be sustainably creative. And you can have multiple artners or polyartners. And if you date your artner, your sweethartners, and you know, if you're craftsy, then your artsy fartners. And like, I don't know, we have like a whole stick. Whenever I tell people about artners, because to me it's like part of my effort to just knock down one little wall of what defines love. Because when I was young, I'd have like sparks with someone and I'd be like, oh, do I want to make out with them or do I want to make art with them? I'm like, oh, I wanted to make art with them. But it's confusing because there wasn't a word for that kind of intimacy. Because when you work, collaborate creatively, it is very intimate. It's very like you're sort of exposing a little part of you and they're exposing like, oh, and we're going to share and make something new. Yeah, so that's something that I love to share with young people, especially be like you are, you might be the only one at your school who's like you, but you are not alone. And an artner is also just someone who supports you. So even your parents, they might not understand what you do, but if they're supporting you, then they're like, so encouraging, like, yes, we need a support system. Because there's an imagination war right now. We gotta, like, stick together. <laughs> That's awesome. Artners! Uh, so many great answers. I don't know if there's, if there's anything to add. They keep it going. I mean, that's the best way to, I mean, it's, I know you say buy the book, but I mean, my strip would not happen without crowdfunding and Patreon support. Each one of my strips is meant to stand alone. Again, I think that's what Tom's talking about with his book, but I, I, me, every page of my strip is gonna be someone's first. And so it's very important that I make them shareable, different sizes. Steve, you mentioned all the different formats that you've worked in. What's your preferred format to use and why? Like, what are the challenges and benefits of that format? Is it the single panel webcomic? Is I, it the collective? Of the I think graphic? the book is probably the most long-lasting format. It's the one that's the most easy to monetize. It's the one that if Webtoons goes away tomorrow or my website gets shut down tomorrow, it'll be the one that will outlive the internet. Long-term, I think about that as the primary way. I don't work at very high print resolutions for that purpose, but I'm still growing my audience. I mean, this is a project that's only two years old, and so I feel like the web episodes are probably the most important right now. But long-term, print is more important. So, both. Okay. I like books, books, because I got my start in sketchbooks, and I like the intimacy of just one-on-one, -on -one handheld medium. I don't know, it's just, yeah, so call me a traditional, but I prefer just yeah, a book a book. Page flip versus a click, right? Isn't there something better? Yeah, I like the tactile, because actually even with my work, I've been going away from doing things digitally, because I feel like it doesn't have the same soul, you know, like the piece of paper. I'm actually like, it's like a horcrux. I'm like, except not evil, <laughs> like embedding part of me into it. When I was in middle school, I wanted to be a Disney animator, like every, you know, every girl. <laughs> And I gave up that dream, so I was like, oh, I'm not good enough, or whatever. It takes, you know, like two hours to read, and it's basically a movie on paper. That's how I sort of think about it. It's like, oh, I get to make movies, but alone. Because also, I don't like looking at screens so much, so. But I have an idea for a comic to do after this graphic novel I'm penciling. I was thinking of maybe publishing it on Patreon, because I have a Patreon for this book, but after I'm done penciling, I was like, well, am I going to continue? Because I have a whole 
strip that I've done just a few of, but it's sort of inspired by my meditation practice. It's sort of visualizations I use to turn my brain off at night and deal with the, the crazy. Um, so it's like, oh, but what I do it is like a online comic. No! So it's sort of in my head. So I'm trying to keep an open mind because I feel like the stories can fit in so many vessels and so many boxes. So, and so when you have an idea, it's like, well, I guess this could fit in a variety. And so, yeah, it's changing how I'm thinking. So it's definitely on my mind to sort of maybe try something else oh, yeah. between books because books take forever. Yeah. It, it just jump back for a second. The reason why printed well is because right now people are designing for phones and they weren't two years ago and they might not be two years from now. Mm. And so I like designing, thinking of books because at least I know there's going to be, I, well, okay, maybe I'm wrong, but, but <laughs> I, I have a really strong sense that there will always be books and I'm not sure oh, there'll yeah. always be iPhones. <clears throat> also because, I don't know, I'm still more in the loss of my MySpace blog. So I first started posting our <laughs> on MySpace and the internet ate it. Yeah, so paper is better. <laughs> so not right now, but later, check out Katie Cook's keynote. Uh, she talked about this a lot. I don't like limiting myself if I can, but I'm trying to get out of that. So I very much like books. To me, I think they're like DVD sets now, where I don't need to have every book. I, I love my Kindle because I don't need to read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo ever again. I enjoyed reading it, but I don't need to have that trophy on my shelf. I would rather have, you know, there are a couple books of artist studios that are just beautiful that I want. Also, my house isn't getting any bigger, so I'm very particular about what comes into it. So I'm bringing in the things I very much want to have, but I don't mind consuming um, from many places. When I did Warning Label, it was built on a 2 by 3 grid. So it was designed to scroll, which is the Webtoons format. They buy into it so much that when you're on your phone reading it, it doesn't feel like it's translating. It feels like it's the direct way to give it to you. But by doing it on that grid, I was able to turn it into a book very easily. Um, I actually drew the pages as if they were comic book pages and then had a script that would chop them up into the right size. All the panels are the same size. It was really easy. But Actually, with my next one, uh, Cupid's Arrows, which comes out at the end of the month, because you have to self-promote, I want to do it as a webcomic. I want to take advantage of that. There's a lot of comic books that are adaptations of other medium, um, media, like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic, because I'm old and I'll reference that, where when the comics first came out, they read like everybody's spec scripts that didn't get produced. So it's lots of scenes of people sitting, talking, and making jokes which work great on TV, not as well in the comics. When Joss Whedon got to write an issue, he's like, I'm bringing in a big monster because I can't afford to have that on my show. So I think you should play to the medium that you're at. And because of that, I want to try a lot more inventive stuff in Cupid's Arrows so that I'm taking advantage of the format and see where that goes. But also, you know, you're not married to it. You can do all the stuff. Like you can do books and web comics and anything. There's no reason you have to pick one. Of all those formats, I consume all of them, but I tend to like the webcomic, the one-page webcomic that comes out, because I know, oh, I can consume that, you know, before I get up in the morning, I can just pull out my phone, look at it, look at my email, or the comic or graphic novel, because it's there. It's piling up in my room, it's piling up in my office. I have to read that. Digital, I tend to, oh, I can get to that later. And that's the problem with the digital. It's like something shared through social media or through an email that's, you know, one panel, or something that's tangible. Otherwise, I kind of put it off. But you gentlemen are working with print. You're not doing digital at all right now. It's just strictly print your own imprint, Pancake Comics. We have ebooks through Amazon and you know distribution that way. But uh, for me, oh, well, I'll let you go ahead. I'll let you since you. Mm -hmm. so. I'd rather do print 
but um i'm gonna explain why so with print like um you would have a feelable thing like something that you can feel with your hands but for something online you can't do that but also like if you have it on print it could be like really rare and like um something nobody can get anymore but on like the internet like anybody can look at it but another thing if the um, book breaks or like it rips or it gets wet or it gets burned it won't be there anymore on electronics if your phone gets broken then you can just buy another and go back on there but the reason why i like this feelable stuff more is because if there's a really rare book then that's way more valuable than on the internet because anybody can access it but in real life nobody can unless they break into your house <laughs> I just yeah. and as for me yeah. uh, you know I grew up in an era where I, as a child I was just so excited to go run and get the latest issue of, of whatever character it was that was out you know, superhero I was a fan of. When we decided to go forward in, in producing his, his comic, I just thought it would be wonderful just to take it back to that time of just running and waiting for the next issue, you know, and physically having it. Nothing like having a signature, making it more personal, you know, from the actual author and artist, you know, so, and I take them everywhere. Sometimes I grab them before I even put on my underwear. I'd go and I grab the books, make sure I have them for a walk out the house, make sure that in case somebody runs into me and they're like, do you have the latest issue? Sure do. Here we go. So that's, that's the fun part about it, having physical. It's hard to sign a tablet. It's hard yeah. to sign a tablet. <laughs> <laughs> My last question before I open it up for a Q&A. Given the many different entertainment choices that people have now, I mean, besides just how they consume their comics, print, digital, graphic novels, there's Netflix, Amazon, streaming, there's gaming, there's so many different choices people have, so many things pulling at them for their entertainment. It's so difficult to decide how to spend your time when you have that free time. For the panelists, what is it that still makes comics special? Why is it still a good entertainment value? And why is it still important in terms of education as well? Why are they still so important in our society comic books, both as a form of entertainment and as a form of education? I think it's because they're the best form of reading. As reading materials go, we can do everything pros can do and everything they can't do. You know, We're not limited just to whatever you can type with a keyboard, we can do everything and I think it's still reading it's still you can't have a comic on in the background it's powered by you it's a thing that's dead until you come along and invest you trade some of your time and some of your energy some of your life and you read this thing and you're there for the entire time you're reading it I don't know I get a little choked up a little bit about how awesome this form is you know that's not why I do a goofy duck comic but it's this powerful form I think that's why it's so important it's great for reluctant readers it's so much easier to understand something if you say someone's like the Alsatian is traversing the, you know, the peninsula, and you're like, what the who what? And you have a picture next to it showing that dog crossing a little island. You know, all of a sudden you're, you've explained these words and you've never had to explain these words. And it's just these layers upon layers of meaning. And they're great in a way that film and TV, and on top of it, it's me talking to you. Again, it's that personal thing again. It's not me working with this team of a thousand people. And it could be something great. The Avengers movies are great. Each one of them makes more money than the entire comic industry does in a year. But it's personal. This is between me and you, you know? So I think that's why it has relevance in a way that other medium, media don't. Music might as well, you know, that direct. Yeah. I relish the fact, I always, when I do school, I point out that like when I was a kid, I kind of hated reading. 
because words were not my first language. I thought in like pictures. I sort of think in like archetypes and metaphors. And so I love story, but I didn't like reading. To me, graphic novels opened, it helped me connect more with a love of reading. So now I actually read like word books now, which I'm like, good for me, I read real regular books. But because it just, words were sort of like Teflon. And if someone described a scene with words and I'd have to picture it in my head. And if I couldn't picture it, they would sort of like fall off like Teflon and then I'm reading the same paragraph over and over and over. It was just so hard. We're also, we consume so many pictures now. We're, we're visual people. So telling a story with words and pictures is much more in sync with our everyday life. And I think it was Art Spiegelman that pointed out in the talk that the only thing that we can process at once is a picture and like a short phrase, almost like Instagram. That's all that we can take in at a time. So he's like, this is the best way to present any information, any data. And like that story is just data with a soul. Also to quote Brene Brown, I'm just quoting people today. Uh, <laughs> so that's why I feel like comics is this wonderful, accessible, like tofu, it just soaks up whatever you put it in. Because I found that there's where there's space for me to go into it. I think it's like sugar. You don't have to work to break it down. It's just instant. It's hard to not read a comic. Uh, when I would read the Sunday newspaper with the comic section, I would read Mark Trail. I didn't want to read it. It was just there. My eyes went over it, and I consumed half of it before I knew what I was doing. The combination of words and pictures happens so fast that it's hard. Like, you can't not read it. The way that if I see a huge page of text, it's easy for that to just gray out and then I won't pay attention to it, or I actually have to turn something on. It hits my field of vision and you read it. You can't not read a bumper sticker on a car in front of you because it's in front of you and you just saw it and then you consumed it. And I think that part of comics that it's so, it's so simple and it's so easy to digest that it makes it so accessible. And there's so much you can do with the format. There's so much it's capable of doing that, and I don't think all of it's been tapped into. I think that's like its potential. And you know, when you get something from Ikea, there is a comic strip about how to build it. Um, it's the same thing. You're just dispensing that information in that visual way that people can't help but know what's going on. The reason why comic books are still important is because it feeds your brain with new words that you don't know. Comic books, they're um, a good source of entertainment because Although the pictures are there and the pictures are really cool, it keeps you entertained. The words also also are in there that helps you learn as well. So like a big chapter book thing, people are probably not, not going to read that because it has like a lot of words and stuff. But you should because it helps you think. <laughs> and reading, it helps you strengthen your mind and with the big chapter books although people might not want to read it it's good because if you're an artist and you're starting out it makes your brain movements picture things to draw and stuff but when you go on TV it does that for you so that takes away from it that's it in a nutshell that's it <laughs> Yeah. The thing about comics is if you have a child that's not really interested in reading, right? I remember when I was a kid, I read, started out reading comics. And then next thing I knew, I started reading paperback books about like Conan because it was heroic and adventurous, what got me started reading. 
And then, of course, I never stopped reading comics in any format, and I still love them today more than ever before, but it's a great way to get someone interested. My daughter's here. Hi, Vicky. I mean, you didn't read a whole lot when you were little until I started bringing Spider-Girl comics home, Tom DeFalco, right? And, and it's, do you have another Spider-Girl comics? And then just from there, and then you started reading other things that you liked, that you wanted to read, but it got you started because it was an easy way to get started. Out of control. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions with the time we have left for the panelists? Um, yes, sir, in the Spider-Man outfit? just be trying to shoot a web. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what this question's gonna be. What, what, is, what is your... Um... Does anyone else have a question? That's my son, it's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it, son. Um, no one... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh man, an entrepreneur. Uh, Somebody wants to eat. eat. From a young age. If if, <laughs> if people want T-shirts of my podcast, Creator Talks, where I interview writers and artists, that's all I do. Um, I will make them, but as of now, no, they're limited. They're exclusive to the family. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. Wow. <laughs> Does anyone else have any questions for the uh, panelists? Yes, sir. So, Inchworm, was it hard for you to? Propose the idea to your father about the comic books. How hard was it hard for you? Was it easy? It wasn't exactly hard. So this is how I like told him about it. So one day, me, my mom, and my dad, um, were in the bathroom. Just to tell you all, it's a pretty big bathroom. So, <laughs> <laughs> so my dad said, "Hey, I want to become a superhero, run around New York City." and beating up bad guys like a hero. And I said, yeah, you could. You could be named Daddy Longlegs, and I could be named the Inchworm. And that's kind of how it all started. The school that uh, I was teaching at over the summer, I was teaching children how to you know, create the canvases and artwork. Uh, my son, at, during the graduation, he had asked for some paper. It was about a, about a month or so after he had came up with the name. He asked for some paper. He went to the back of the room, and there he drew up the first issue. Drew up the whole story, the concept of it, the, the storyline, the costumes, and everything. And then the next morning, he had finished it all. And he brought it to me on his uh, the pieces of the page, and he said, Dad, what do you think? And I read it, and I was, you know, I found it very humorous. I loved the story and what he did. And I said, I'm going to show you what I think. Between my wife and myself, we found an online publisher to help us with getting the comics published. I took his creation, and I just cleaned up his lines and added the color, and we created a, a comic book. Young man's been creating books ever since the age of five. This is his first at the age of nine where he came up with an idea and a company he wanted to start. You two are artners. Artners, yeah, with artners. You are. I took him up with a new word for when you artner with a family member. I've never yeah. thought of that. That's a special, like, Artners. Mm. Oh, wow. Any other questions for the panelists? Yes. Uh-oh. This panel will be on my podcast next week, Creator Talks. Uh, my son, Spider-Man, is handing out what the uh, podcast is. So, yes, uh, it's on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. And uh, all my panelists have been on the podcast on previous episodes to so talk in more detail about their work. And I know Tom Lurley and Steve will be here at the con, so please stop by and see them if you haven't already, and all the books they talked about will be there. Uh, Demetrius and Bryce, they will be on the floor for the rest of the con. They came to visit us today, so uh, if you want to see them after the panel, please do. But if there's no other questions, have fun at the rest of the con. Buy some comics. And I'm taking pictures with my mask on. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, I hope you enjoyed the panel from Baltimore Comic Con. I spent just the day there, just Sunday, and I ran around really quick meeting up with a lot of people I've met in the past and some people I've never met before. I said hello to Dean Haspel, who just had the 10th anniversary edition of The Alcoholic come out through Dark Horse Burger Books. I had the original edition, and I just had to get the 10th anniversary because I love that story. It is so good, so I urge you to check it out. Of course, I had a chance to see all my panelists before the panel, and from Tom, I did pick up a copy of Long Distance, which I haven't read yet, so I do want to read that because I love his rom-coms. I said hi to Steve and Laura Lee, and Bryce and Demetrius caught up with me right before the panel, so it was great to see them, the whole family as a matter of fact. Other guests I had a chance to chat with briefly was Bob Wyatt. Bob did a sketch of Batman for me back in 1993, I think it was, at a convention in Wilmington. It was either at a school or a firehouse. And he was there next to Kevin Van Hook, who was signing copies of Bloodshot Number 1 from Valiant. And uh, Bob did the sketch for me. And it was really nice of him, so I sent him a copy because he didn't have one. (laughs) So I did that. And also, I met Bob Hall. I have a piece of his artwork from Shadow Man, page number 2, from issue 26. It is a beautiful splash page. He didn't have a copy of that, so I also sent him a scan of that. It was great to share that with him because he did not have a copy of that piece of art. So that should be showing up on his page as well. I had a chance to briefly chat with Richard and Wendy Peeney, the creators of ElfQuest, which I heard a story about on NPR who interviewed them, and they were thrilled about that. I also had a chance to briefly meet Dennis Cohen. I didn't want to interrupt his eating. I mean, the man has to eat. He's very busy, but it was great to see him way back in the day, back in the 90s. I followed Milestone Comics including his Hardware, one of my favorites, and Blood Syndicate, which I told him my letter was selected as Letter of the Month in the back of the book in issue number 31. So if you have that, take a look. That's my letter in there from back in like 94. I was walking past a booth that had a sign-up, a sound of thunder, and a video playing, and it's a heavy metal band that has a comic book tie-in to it. Each song has a comic that goes with it in this anthology book, A Sound of Thunder. It was metal by A Sound of Thunder is the name of the band. Creators on the book included Rachel Persephone, who I met at the con and had spoken to before, and Bob Hall, who I just met at the con for the first time. And the album is phenomenal. I put it on and immediately I liked it. There's not a dud in the bunch. It's all killer, no filler. And how it ties in with the anthology book, A Sound of Thunder, It Was Metal, is wonderful. It has the lyrics from each song, who wrote the story, who did the art, and then there's a story that ties into each song on the album. So I picked up the book and the CD. And even though I was there for only a short while, just for the one day, I did have a chance to run into fellow podcasters, Ruth and Darren of Xenozoic Xenophiles, and they had a chance to meet Mark Schultz during their visit and spend some time with him and pick up a lot of original art, so they had a great time at the con. And while we were talking, we were joined by Kenneth G. Baker and Derek William Crabb, both podcasters as well, so we had a little group photo that you'll see out there on Twitter and on Instagram. Plus, I said hi to Don Griffin of the Webcomic Alliance podcast. I did have a chance to pick up some comics. How could I not at Baltimore Comic Con? I dove into the $2 bins when I first got on the floor. I had to because there were so many great books from the 70s. 
filling in some holes in my collection. I picked up Commandy, Last Boy on Earth. I got a couple of issues of that. I finished my run of Skull the Slayer from Marvel Comics. That was an eight-issue series with aliens and dinosaurs from Marvel Comics in the mid-70s. 2001, A Space Odyssey with Machine Man on the cover, just his head. The New Look Machine Man, issue number 10, which coincidentally is also the issue number that I picked up of 2001. The New Look is done by Steve Ditko. Plus, I found several issues of Adventures on the Planet of the Apes from Marvel Comics from the mid-70s. And the interiors look gorgeous, so I'll be posting those on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, along with other books I picked up, The Sandman, issue number two. And further fleshing out my DC collection, I found some half-price books towards the end of the con. Superman, number 240, a 15-cent cover, and two Justice League books. Number 132 and 137, the Justice League is fighting the beasts who fought like men. And the next issue, 137, I mentioned, Superman is fighting the big red cheese. Shazam! Oh, and one other book that I picked up from that $2 bin is The Shadow. Number 8, Night of the Mummy. I thought, being October, this is a great book to post during the month of October, so you'll see that coming up this weekend. It's a nice 20 center. Great work by Frank Robbins. I also want to add, among the people I met at the con was Ed Piskor, who I interviewed about X-Men Grand Design. I took my copy of X-Men Grand Design Second Genesis Issue 1. He was kind enough to sign that, and he was super nice. It was so great to meet him in person. He's like, how's the podcast going? And I had a chance to catch up with former guests Sarah and David Trustman, who wrote The Memory Arts. Again, I went through very quickly, just touching base with people. Charles C. Dowd, who wrote Lilith Dark. I saw Amy Chu and picked up a copy of Kiss, number one, through Dynamite Comics, which she signed for me with a cover by Francesco Francavilla. And I also had a chance to catch up with Meredith Finch. She was at her table, and she signed a copy of Xena, the Warrior Princess, number two for me, because it has a great David Finch cover, uh, modeled after Frank Frazetta's Conan cover with the sword, great cover and it was great to see her and she's working on another comic she actually did one for cave pictures publishing who i had a chance to stop by their table and say hello and hopefully we'll have them on the show in the future to learn about their new independent publishing venture they have the likes of jason brubaker jim kruger meredith finch bill tucci and jesse ham working on their comics the sample comic that they handed out looks great. I'm very excited about it, and I hope to bring you more information about that in the weeks ahead. And so I closed out the day with my daughter Vicky and her friend Shamar at the Pratt Street Ale House and had a California burger that has the nice avocado on top and a beer called, and this is what's in the menu, Balls to the Wall. Sounds really strong, but it's only 5%, an American pale ale, and I wanted something light not an IPA since I'd be driving my son Nolan home and I was tired and I wanted to make sure I was alert and focused while I was driving on the road. Don't drink and drive, folks. All right, then. Who's coming up next on the show? Mina Elwell and Alan Christopher Medina, AC Medina. They both returned to the show to talk about their comic book, Halicious, through Starburn Industries. And we are joined by, for the first time, Trevor Richardson. Trevor is going to talk about the founding of Starburn Industries and his work as an editor. And also on an upcoming episode, Sam Johnson joins me to give me an update on the next phase of Geek Girl and his Kickstarter. 
Thank you for joining me and thank you for listening to the show. Please rate and review on iTunes. Every review helps. The show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and Amazon Alexa devices. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.